There in Micah chapter 4, verse 6, we find these words. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. prophet Zechariah speaks of a glorious time of restoration and repentance in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and following, in which God will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And the land shall mourn all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. Certainly, this prophesied turning to Christ was realized in part when the apostles preached the gospel to the Jews in the early chapters of Acts, and thousands became converts. But the full realization of this prophecy in Zechariah and in Micah awaits yet a time most likely in the very near future when a vast majority of the Jews will weep with bitter tears of mourning and will acknowledge Jesus Christ to be their God and their long-awaited Messiah whom their fathers rejected and shamefully crucified. Can you imagine the effect such an event will have upon the nations when the Jews as a people will publicly acknowledge themselves to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you imagine the headlines in the newspapers throughout the world? Israel turns to Christ. Israel embraces the Messiah she wants crucified. This event will not be hid in some dark corner, but will be one of the signs signaling the inauguration of the millennial reign of Christ. David Brown depicts the unprecedented sight of Israel falling, falling before the Lord Jesus in genuine faith and repentance when he says, Once he came to his own, and his own received him not, but at the second time, Joseph shall be made known to his brethren, and the house of Pharaoh shall hear the weeping, as one has touchingly said. Oh, what an unexampled mourning that will be. But the most glorious feature of it will be its evangelical character. It will be the fruit of a believing look upon him whom they have pierced. 
And oh, when they see that blood which as a nation they have murderously shed, turned into a fountain open to themselves for sin and for uncleanness, when they find their robes washed and made white in that very blood of the Lamb, how will they water a free pardon with their tears? How will they be disposed to exclaim to their Gentile brethren everywhere, Come here, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Great times, dear ones, await us in the very near future as we anticipate this event. This Lord's Day, we continue our study in the prophecy of Micah, And as we turn our attention away from the many nations that will flow like a mighty river into the church of Christ in the last days, we come now to that wondrous truth revealed by God that he is not finished with his ancient covenanted people Israel, but will yet draw her unto himself with unbreakable cords of love and covenant grace. Here, dear ones, is a love story. A love story that few will be able to hear without awe and wonder at the mercy of God in Christ and without tears welling up within their eyes and emotion springing forth from their hearts as they hear of God's covenanted love and mercy. The main points... From part one of this sermon, part two to follow next Lord's Day, God willing. The main points from part one of this sermon are these. First, the time of Israel's reunion. And second, the mercy of Israel's reunion. As we consider the first point, the time of Israel's reunion, we note that the prophecy of Micah, chapter 4, verse 6, says, In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. In that day. In what day will the Lord assemble halting Israel and gather his scattered people? It says, In that day. That is, in that day when, according to Micah 4.2, many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob. In that day, there will also be a restoration of Israel, a reunion of Israel with her Savior. In other words, at the time when Antichrist is destroyed, when Satan is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations of the world, and the millennial kingdom is breaking forth amongst the nations of the earth, Israel's restoration will likewise be breaking forth upon the earth. There are several New Testament passages which address the restoration of Israel. I'll read three of them for you very quickly and we'll focus our attention upon the fourth one. In Matthew 23:39, the Lord Jesus, looking over Jerusalem, weeps 
over her rejection and over that which is to come upon her by way of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and and her being cast out. And the Lord says, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The inference being that there will be a time when Israel will declare, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, from hearts that are filled with faith and love. A genuine turning to Christ. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, before the Lord's ascension, the disciples asked the Lord this question. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Here's the Lord's answer. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Very simply, he could have said that there is no future restoration of Israel. He simply could have said, You don't know what you're talking about. You misunderstand. Israel will not be restored. The kingdom will not be brought again to Israel. The Lord says, it's not for you to know these particular details. This is in God's mighty hand. He will see that it is worked out according to his plan. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul speaks concerning Israel who has a veil set over her heart. As a nation, as a people, the veils, every time the word of God is read, there's a veil set over their eyes, their, their spiritual eyes of their hearts, so they cannot understand the word of God. Not simply as individuals here and there, but as a nation, this is true, Paul says. And he says in verse, verses 15 and 16, but even unto this day, When Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, that is the heart of Israel as a people collectively, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Paul gives us the anticipation and expectation that there is coming a time when the veil shall be removed from the heart of Israel collectively as a people and then finally and this is where we will focus our attention for a few moments here Romans chapter 11 Romans chapter 11 in this particular chapter the apostle Paul sets out to explain to those detractors as to what God's purpose is with Israel. He says in verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. He is dealing with his people collectively. He is dealing with his people as a body, as a whole. Has God cast away his people, Israel? God forbid. In verse 5, 
Paul gives us in the present time hope that there will yet be a future restoration of Israel as a body because he says in verse 5, even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant. There are those individuals, few throughout Israel, who are coming to Christ. And I'm an example of one of those, Paul says who has come to Christ. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 11 and following to detail how the Lord will bring Israel as a body, as a people unto himself. He says in verse 11, I say then, have they, that is Israel, as a body stumble, that they should fall, that they should remain in a fallen Condition never to rise again? Is that what God's purpose was? Just to set them permanently aside? Never to restore them again? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, that is Israel, to jealousy. Verse 12. Now if the fall of them that is the fall of Israel, be the riches of the world. The riches of the gospel went out to the Gentile nations as a result of the fall of Israel. And the diminishing of them, that is, the diminishing of the numbers of Israel, be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. How much more when there is no longer a falling away as a nation, when there is no longer a diminishing of them as a people, but when there is their fullness, how much more will be the blessings to the world and to all the nations? Paul continues in his argument, and I'm just picking out particular verses here in verse 15 he says very similar or speaks very similar words to those that he spoke in verse 12 for if the casting away of them that is the people of Israel as a whole be the reconciling of the world that is of the Gentiles at large what shall the receiving of them, that is, of Israel, again as a nation, as a people, as a body, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? It will be like a spiritual resurrection throughout the whole world when Israel comes to Christ. And then he proceeds to give this little analogy of an olive tree, that the olive tree... Uh, has a root which, uh, which represents the covenant fathers, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this olive tree springs from the covenanted promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the natural branches prove themselves and show themselves to be totally unfaithful and God removes them from the olive tree. And in their place, he grafts into this olive tree the Gentiles, showing mercy unto them. But Paul argues, is he finished with Israel? 
Or will he yet graft Israel back into their own olive tree? In verse 24, Paul says, in answer to that question, For if thou, speaking to the Gentiles, wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, the Gentiles were not taken from this natural olive tree, but they were taken from a wild olive tree and grafted into this good natural olive tree. So Paul says, For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, into the covenanted promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how much more shall these, being Israel, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? If God took wild olive branches and put them into this good olive tree, how much more will he bring the original branches back in? In verse 25, he speaks of a mystery. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. There's a blindness that, that is over the eyes of Israel. Not the elect within Israel who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, which he calls the remnant, but the greater body are blinded. The greater bl uh, part of Israel are blinded as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, there's a veil over their heart presently. They can't see the truth. How long will this blindness last over the great body of Israel, over them as a unit? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. When the fullness of the Gentiles is come in, then the fullness of Israel will also come in, Paul says. And then in verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. That is the vast majority of God's people, his ancient people, Israel, will come and flow like the nations into the house of God. They likewise will flow into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to be a rival to the Gentiles, to set up a rival group. Not so that God has two brides, not so that God has two peoples, but they come into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are renewed in the covenant which God made with them through their forefathers. And so that is why we read in verses 28 and 29 of Romans 11, as concerning the gospel they are enemies for your sakes. Paul says, as you preach the gospel presently to Israel, they're enemies. They persecute you. They hate Jesus Christ. But as touching the election, the fact that they are an elect nation, which God called out of all the nations of the world to be his own and made that covenant with their forefathers, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God will be faithful to his covenanted promises and blessings.
That's a brief overview of Romans chapter 11 and the argument which Paul so convincingly argues for the restoration of Israel. Listen to the words of that noble reformed minister of Geneva and delegate to the Synod of Dort, John Diodati. He's commenting on Romans chapter 11, verse 15, and he notes this. This reestablishment of the Jews ought to be desired of all believers, because that if upon occasion of their rejection, the Gentiles have had part in God's grace through the gospel by their, that is the Jews, recalling they, that is the Gentiles, shall obtain a joy and glory much like to the heavenly one by their spiritual resurrection of this so noble part. That is, by the spiritual resurrection of the body of Israel, the people of Israel, which shall be accompanied with a glorious manifestation of Christ's kingdom and admirable effects. Then again, Diodati clarifies who the all Israel is in Romans 11.26 when he says, That is, the body of the people in general shall be put again into the way of salvation and reestablished into the communion of the church. The body of Israel will be brought again into the church. Now, some have, through the years, sought to limit this great ingathering of Israel spoken of in Micah chapter 4, verse 6. And in Zechariah chapter 12 and in Romans chapter 11, they have sought to limit this great ingathering of Israel to the first few chapters of Acts, wherein thousands responded to the gospel or to those individual Jews that have come to Christ throughout the gospel period. They have sought to limit it to individuals who have responded, but not to Israel as a whole. Although what occurred in the early ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem was the powerful effect of the gospel being brought to Israel. That's true. It was. Nevertheless, it was only a token or first fruits of their future in gathering as a whole. For Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans 11.5 that those Jews that were coming to Christ during the ministry of the apostles, the thousands that had come to Christ during the ministry of the apostles were but a remnant of Israel at the present time. He says, even so then, at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. They were a remnant. They were not the whole. They were not the fulfillment of this prophecy. All Israel shall be saved. But this relatively small remnant of Israel that professed faith in Jesus Christ during the period of the apostles is contrasted with the fullness of Israel that will be subsequently gathered to the Lord according to Romans chapter 11 verse 12. You see, he talks about a remnant and then he talks about a fullness. He talks about a remnant 
And then in verse 26 of Romans chapter 11, he talks about all Israel shall be saved. There is intended a contrast as to what is going on at this present time in individual Jews being brought to Jesus Christ in contrast to what will yet occur in the future. And thus, dear ones, all we may expect during this present time is that a remnant of Israel will come to Christ. But when Israel as a people is grafted back into her own olive tree, all Israel will be saved. That is, the greater number of Israel as a people will be brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of the renowned teacher of continental reform theology, Francis Turretin who has stated succinctly the time when the restoration of Israel will occur. He says, Therefore, let it suffice to know that there will be a remarkable conversion of the Jews before the end of the world. Not that all will be converted, but that many will to whom the denomination of all Israel can be applied. That's from his Institutes, Volume 3, page 587. Likewise, we see the same truth clearly displayed in the sermon which was preached by the learned and godly George Gillespie before the House of Commons. Gillespie being a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly. Listen to this brief excerpt from his sermon. He says, but there is a third thing aimed at in this prophecy. And the prophecy he's referring to is Ezekiel 43, 11 which is the repairing of the breaches and ruins of the Christian church and the building up of Zion in her glory about the time of the destruction of Antichrist and the conversion of the Jews. And this happiness hath the Lord reserved to the last times. Not only have some who object to this future conversion of all Israel, as spoken of by Paul, not only have some sought to minimize that by saying it was fulfilled in the first century in the apostolic ministry of Christ, but others have used another argument to try to dispel the weightiness of what is taught here, the clarity of what is taught here. Others have sought to identify the all Israel that shall be saved in Romans 11:26 with that of all the elect from both Jews and Gentiles. But such an interpretation does not do justice to the entire context of Romans chapter 11, which is the salvation of Israel collectively and not the salvation of individual members of Israel here and there throughout the gospel period. Paul acknowledges that there are a remnant that are presently being saved, but that's not the focus. His whole focus is is God through with his people collectively, his ancient covenanted people. Or does he yet have a purpose and design for them as a people? That's the focus. That's the design of Romans chapter 11 to teach that. Romans 11, 1 Paul says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. 
So it's, it's contrary. Such a view is contrary to the very context of Romans chapter 11, where his focus is upon Israel as a body, not the elect uh, uh, Jews and Gentiles that can be called all Israel. Furthermore, making all Israel in Romans 11.26 to refer to the elect from among both Jews and Gentiles does not do justice to the mystery referred to in Romans 11.25. Turn with me there again. What is this mystery? This is the mystery, Paul says. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Which Israel does he have in view? Is it not the body of Israel? Is it not the whole group, the nation of Israel? Israel is a people. He says blindness has happened to them as a nation, as a people, until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then immediately, and so all Israel shall be saved. What hermeneutical principle, what principle of interpretation do we use to all of a sudden change what is a mystery in verse 25? Speaking of Israel as a body, as a nation, and then all of a sudden in verse 26, all Israel suddenly becomes something entirely different, becomes Jews and Gentiles collectively. The consistent use of the word Israel throughout Romans chapter 11 is to the body of Israel, is to the body of Israel, to the group as a whole. Now, although I must say and regretfully that Mr. Calvin advocates this very view, I have just exposed as being an error. It is interesting to note that the Scotch and English refugees living in Geneva, namely those like Knox and Goodman, published in 1560, just four years before the death of Calvin, the Geneva Bible, with its marginal notes, and which notes on Romans chapter 11, verses 15 and 26 clearly anticipate the future restoration of Israel as a people. This is what the marginal notes of the Geneva Bible from 1560 declare. He, that is Paul, showeth that the time shall come that the whole nation of the Jews, though not everyone particularly, shall be joined to the church of Christ. And finally, that great light of the Dutch Reformed Church, Hermann Vitius, declares concerning Israel's reunion with her Lord. The Jews are in due time to be converted from their rebellion and transgressions. As this is not yet accomplished as to the whole body of the Israelites, and yet the scripture must be fulfilled, the apostle has justly inferred that in the last times it will be perfectly fulfilled. In the last times. Moving then from the time of Israel's reunion, let us focus upon our second main point, the mercy of Israel's reunion. For 
in our text, in Micah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth. That halteth. He furthermore says concerning Israel, And I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. The Lord details in this passage his most amazing grace poured out upon an unworthy people. God promises to assemble his ancient people that he maimed due to their sin and to gather her again into himself that was driven out of his house due to her harlotries. When we consider the history of Israel, dear ones, we are reminded time and time and time again that God did not choose this people because they were lovable or because they were righteous. He did not choose them for some merit that was in them. He chose them to magnify His love and His mercy and His grace. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, the Lord says ever so clearly, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people." The Lord would keep his covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land, despite the fact that they were a stiff-necked people, a rebellious people. Likewise, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 7 and 8, the Lord says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You weren't a mighty nation. You weren't a powerful nation. You had nothing that would have attracted me to you. It was because I set my love upon you. It is because I made a promise to your forefathers and I will keep my promise. You remember the many times that Israel tested the Lord in the wilderness? after he had miraculously delivered them by his grace out of Egypt. Time after time after time, they tested the Lord. They rebelled against the Lord and against his leadership. They despised the providence of God and the mercies of God 
and grumbled and complained and wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to bondage. They were continuously looking over their back when God had given them and promised them these blessings. They were looking back. And consider that throughout the period of the judges, the same cycle is repeated over and over and over again. God delivers Israel from her oppressors. Israel backslides from God. God sends the nations upon her to chastise her. Israel repents. And then the cycle begins over again. And it goes through a cycle again. And then it does it again. That is the judge, judge's period. Throughout the period of the prophets, is God not continuously citing the many acts of backsliding committed against a faithful covenant husband? Doesn't he send his prophets continuously to tell Israel, you have forsaken a good and faithful and loving husband by your harlotries, by your fornication, by your idolatry and going after other gods? Is he not pleading? Can you not hear God through the prophets pleading with his bride to return to him? Dear ones, here is a love story in which the Lord takes a people to be his bride, who from the very beginning are infatuated with other lovers. But out of his own covenant love for his bride, he will not utterly forsake her. The Lord showers Israel with his salvation. He bestows upon her a land and gives her good laws to direct her. He appoints her kings after his own heart to lead her. He mercifully warns her by his prophets that if she continues in her backsliding ways that he will send his judgment upon her. What more? I ask, what more could the Lord do to manifest his love for his bride? I'll tell you what more he did do to demonstrate his love for his ancient people. He himself became flesh and dwelt among her. He came unto his own wife in the person of the Son of God, but she received him not. He not only sent his messengers to convey to his love to her, but he came to her in his own person. He healed her sick. He raised her dead and offered to her eternal life. But what did she do? She had him beat and spat upon, mocked and ridiculed and crucified in return for his love. He received her hatred and her scorn. And if that were not enough, Israel as a whole has continued for nearly 2,000 years in that hatred for her heavenly husband. And still, and still, the Lord will manifest his everlasting love for his ancient people by renewing his covenant with her in the very near future and granting to her a genuine spirit of brokenness and contriteness. Oh, the deep, deep sorrow and grief that will be heard throughout Israel in that day 
but oh the deep deep love that will well up within her for her savior for her heavenly husband the Lord Jesus Christ in that glorious day as she embraces him and embraces the gospel of salvation I quoted earlier from Herman Vitzius, but I did not finish his statement, which emphasizes this very truth. Not only that this will occur in the last days before the coming of Christ, but he also emphasizes that God has voluntarily bound himself by covenant to fulfill his covenant love and promises to Israel, and therefore he cannot break his word. Listen again to what Herman Vitzius says. The Jews are in due time to be converted from their rebellion and transgressions. As this is not yet accomplished as to the whole body of the Israelites, and yet the scripture must be fulfilled, the apostle has justly inferred that in the last times it will be perfectly fulfilled. Now, this is the new section. For seeing the foundation thereof is God's covenant with Israel. And this is a firm covenant, stable, immutable, and suspended on no ambiguous condition. It is not possible but that everything shall happen exactly according to the promise and prediction. And this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. All this being addressed to the whole body of the nation of Israel, it must of necessity be fulfilled at the appointed time. I would have you note an analogy between the calling of Paul, dear ones, and the calling of Israel in the last days. The conversion of the Apostle Paul, I believe, beautifully illustrates on the individual level what will be true of Israel on the corporate level. Just as Paul, the Jew, exclaimed that he was the chief of sinners because he persecuted the church and blasphemed the holy name of Christ, so will Israel do in the last days. Just as Paul never forgot his blasphemy and persecution of Christ, but brought every thought of his regretful past into captivity to the grace of Christ, by declaring, I am what I am by the grace of God. Every time the Apostle Paul thought of how he persecuted the church, how he blasphemed the name of Christ, rather than dwelling and becoming burdened and falling into despair over what he had done to Christ in the church, he used the opportunity and he turned it against the enemy. And he said, this is an opportunity to rejoice in the grace of God that I am no longer what I once was. I am now what I am by the grace of God. And in your life, dear one, whatever has occurred in your past for which you have deep regrets and sorrow and you mourn over, this is how you overcome that particular sorrow and grief so that it does not cast you into despair. Every time you, you reflect upon that sin, that failure on your part, if you have turned from it, if you have confessed it to Christ, if you have received His mercy and grace and His forgiveness, use it as an opportunity to glorify the grace of God and do not let the enemy beat you down with that. For you are what you are by the grace of God. 
And that is exactly what Israel as a body will do. In that final day, she will mourn. She will weep. But oh, she will glory in the mercy and in the grace of God. But dear ones, are we Gentiles? Are we Gentiles not guilty of similar sins to that of Israel? Whose idolatry, blasphemy, pride, envy, hatred, and lust sent Christ to the cross? Whose was it? Was it only Israel's? Or was it yours and mine as well that sent Jesus Christ to the cross? We put him on the cross, dear ones. And had we lived at that time, do you know what? Apart from the grace of God, we would have cried out with everyone else, crucify him, crucify him. That's how wicked and evil our hearts are. We would have been in the same position as the Jews at that time. Same covenant love that shall redeem Israel in the future is the same covenant love that has redeemed us here and now and given us the heritage of the sons of God. Dear ones, by considering the love of God for his people Israel, we grow in our understanding of God's covenant love for all his people. He's not going to treat Israel any different than he does the Gentiles. His covenant promises are always faithful, whether to Israel or whether to the Gentiles. And when the love of Christ, dear ones, is earnestly embraced, it breaks the hardest of hearts and it draws us to Christ rather than sending us fleeing from Christ. And it compels us. The love of Jesus Christ compels us like nothing else will to love him. And to take up our cross daily and follow him wherever he leads. You know, we can have confidence about following such a one into the fiery furnace. One who loves us in this way. We can follow such a one who so completely loves us through the valley of the shadow of death. Because we know wherever he would lead us. He leads us there because He loves us. Such a love, dear ones, does not foster license to sin, but rather it fosters thankful submission to His loving yoke. His love for His people will never, ever let them go. God will never let you, His people, go. For no one or nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I close by adding for you a brief section to that very familiar parable of the prodigal son. The Lord has given us the parable, but I want to, if I might, just add to that parable For in that parable, we observe that when the younger son returned in sincere brokenness and humility to his father's house, the older brother, rather than rejoicing, sulked, indulged himself in self-righteousness and charged his father, in effect, with being unfair and not inviting him and his friends to their own feast. This illustrated to all who had ears to hear that the Jews as a people 
were the older brother. They likewise sulked and indulged in self-righteousness and charged the Lord with unfair treatment by the Lord welcoming freely sinners into his house, whether publicans or harlots or the Gentiles, welcoming them freely to his banqueting table. And if I might continue the same theme, the elder brother, that is the Jews, became filled with such a self-righteous indignation over the grace extended to the younger brother, the Gentile sinners, and hatred for the Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ, that they turned their backs upon the Lord and persecuted the younger brother and were cast out of the house of the Lord to wander from one pigsty to another for 2,000 years. But in these last days, the elder brother, Israel, shall be made alive to Christ and shall return to the Lord and shall embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and weep upon his neck and shall declare himself unworthy of the least blessing from the Lord Jesus Christ. But our merciful Christ will call for the fatted calf and the royal robe and the sandals and the ring and will place them upon the older brother. He will bring, dear ones, Jesus will bring the elder brother back into the household of faith there to be united with the younger brother, the Gentiles. At that time, the younger brother will not sulk in self-righteousness or foolishly charge Christ with unfairness as did the elder brother earlier. But the younger brother will stand beside the Lord and with tears will welcome the elder brother into the Lord's house, which house will be made complete throughout the millennial reign of Christ. How appropriate, therefore, are the words of Samuel Rutherford as he describes the reunion of the older brother Israel to Christ taken from his letters, pages 122 and 123. Rutherford says, Oh, to see the sight, next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful. Our elder brethren, the Jews, and Christ fall upon one another's necks and kiss each other. They have been long asunder. They will be kind to one another when they meet. Oh, day, oh, long for and lovely day dawn, Oh, sweet Jesus, let me see that sight which will be as life from the dead, thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. Please stand with me in prayer. O Lord our God, Thou hast melted our heart, our cold heart. Thou hast broken our hard heart by Thy love and Thy covenant mercies and grace in Christ Jesus. And we have seen portrayed before us such rebellion in the nation Israel. But because of Thy covenant love and faithfulness to keep Thy promises, in spite 
of all that Israel has passed through, thou wilt yet draw her unto thyself. Thou wilt yet restore her. And we do pray, Father, as thy people, as thy people of the younger brother, we do pray that thou would restore unto us our elder brother. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the glory of the gospel would go forth through faithful preaching. And that, Father, the kingdom of Antichrist would be broken and destroyed once and for all. And that, Father, the, the nations would embrace the gospel. And that Israel would follow in suit. Lord, we pray that thou would hasten the day. Thou would keep us ever hopeful, ever praying, that we might know that our labors are not in vain, for this, Lord, is what we pray for and for that which we work, to see these blessings brought to thy people and eventually to see all of thy people taken up into glory with thee when Christ returns. We ask our Father that thou would teach us Lord to trust thee for thou art a God of love that we would not worry that we would not be cast into fear that we would not be thrown into despair despondency or hopelessness for Father thou dost love us with an everlasting love and thou will not let us go teach us Father to rest securely in that love and to be energized by that love to go forth with good works, with deeds that glorify Thee, our God. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, 
I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.